Good morning. My name is Ji Yun Huang. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, verses 1 through 17 and 27 through 31. Because this is a longer text, the words will be projected on the screen behind me. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jezbazites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jezebelites. 
a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. 
The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Exodus on God's delivering his people from the soul-crushing darkness of oppression, enslavement, and genocide that we talked about last week that happens to God's people. He delivers them not just out of that apart from him, but even as our text suggests here, into a new life with him, into communion and worship and connection with him. And I want us to look at these things so that we might see the persistence the faithfulness, the, the stubbornness of God's pursuit of his people in all things, in all scenarios, out of darkness and into light, even in our own lives and our own world. Uh, last week, we started out by looking at all the threats that were facing the promises that God had made to his people hundreds of years before. Uh, and those threats looked like, as we just said, oppression. It looked like enslavement. It looked like genocide. And we saw, ultimately, the deliverance from those things was not meant to come from us. Though we play a part, though it's important that we stand up against those things and do what is right, ultimately, deliverance was not meant to come from us, but through us by God. And today, we're going to look at how God starts answering the cries of his people that we hear, that it says he hears in Exodus 1 through 2. And we're going to see that that's going to start to happen in some surprising ways, that it continues to be surprising through most of Exodus, how God does this pulling us out of darkness and into light. And it's surprising to Moses in this passage. And as we look into it, I think it's going to be surprising to us as well, because it's going to involve not miraculous strength by itself, though that will come in the plagues, but it's going to involve something that that for us is probably going to feel even harder than that something that we're deeply uncomfortable with, which is stepping into vulnerability and uncertainty. That's how God is going to start delivering his people. So I want us to look this morning at the surprising vulnerability that God calls us into, the surprising even vulnerability of God himself, and how that leads us out into greater freedom through three things. First, Moses' concerns that we see in this passage. Second, God's response to Moses' concerns. And finally, God's purposes. So Moses' concerns, God's response, and God's purposes. Before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me as we ask God to fill up our time and open our hearts to his word. God, thank you that you do hear our cries, that you know what's going on in our hearts, that you hear, that you are attentive, that you see these things, and that it is on your heart to answer. So I don't know where these hearts are coming in from this morning. What's on them? What's heavy for them? What are the things that they don't want to think about that, that they would rather not enter into? Where are the things that are, 
are just too difficult to even think about making progress towards, I pray that you might step in for them this morning, that as we talk about what it means to be vulnerable before you and how that that leads us out into greater things, God, would you be the one who makes them safe, who lets them feel like it is okay to step out into the light, that they can trust you, that you are worth trusting, that you are faithful over time, and that you are good. And so I pray this morning that you would be present in that way. Would you illuminate our hearts? Would you open our eyes that we might see you and know that you are for us and you are with us and you are leading us to good things? In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to have those out. If not, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or you could use an app on your phone. We're going to be going through parts of the text. It's really too much to remember for yourself, so I encourage you to use that as I reference things. But we'll start by looking at Moses's concerns. The last time we saw Moses last week, he was fleeing. He was on the run, leaving Egypt, fearing for his life because he had seen oppression and he had taken a stand against it, but then he was afraid of the consequences that would come for that when it was clear that the people knew what he did. And so he's been living in the wilderness as a shepherd for a long time. And he's probably maybe thought about his time in Egypt from time to time, maybe thought about his family and his friends and his community and how they're still suffering. But he probably thought that his time in Egypt was done, that he wasn't going back. He couldn't go back. There was, there was no resolving that. It was just going to be a loss. And then in chapter 3 here, in verses 2 through 10, God appears miraculously and starts bringing all that flooding back, all the things that maybe he had pushed out of his mind, all the family and memories, all the experiences, all the hurts starts coming flooding back to Moses. God tells him he's seen all the affliction that Moses saw, that everything that was bothersome, that, that hurt Moses, hurt God's heart even more, and he is going to do something about that. But here's the surprise, especially to Moses, is that he is going to do something about that through Moses. Verse 10. He's going to do that by sending Moses, chapter 3, verse 11, to bring them out. He's going to involve Moses in this process. Moses, who has blown this before, Moses, who has abandoned and given up on this before, he's going to involve Moses in this now, doing this thing that Moses was so scared of, for how many decades now? This is concerning to Moses for a variety of reasons, uh, and it would be concerning to us. And, and you may not see that just from the text, but the fact that Moses talks back and forth with God so many times, you can start to hear as chapter four goes on more and more, the concern in Moses's voice. Please don't make me do this, is almost what Moses is saying. I want us to see a bit of ourselves in Moses here, particularly if you are not a Christian and feeling like, listen, I don't, I don't believe in the miraculous. I don't get this Jesus thing. I don't know that scripture has anything to say to me. I want, I want you to see that Moses talks like a modern person and that Moses has problems that we have. His concerns are very much the same concerns that you and I have today and that God's responses to Moses are also his responses to us and our concerns that there is a touch point for you here, whether you believe or not. And I want to help us bring those things to light because Moses is probably more like us than we think. Moses sounds like a modern person in this passage. He sees something supernatural, uh, a bush on fire, not consumed, and something is speaking out of that to him. 
This is strange. This is not how things go. Moses was no more willing to believe that than you and I would believe that or would be willing to believe that. But what does Moses do when he sees this? You might think of ancient people as superstitious, as, as ignorant, as whatever. You might expect Moses to start bowing down and praying to it and just doing whatever it says. What does Moses do? Moses is like a modern person. He starts arguing with it. Moses starts negotiating with the supernatural. This is what we do, right? He's trying to tell that thing why its power shouldn't change his life, why it should listen to him, why it should be on his terms, why it should fit into his categories. Moses is exactly like a modern person here. It feels like something we might do with God. You might say, I've got some doubts about this God. I don't know about this whole Christian life thing. I don't know about this whole resurrection thing. You tell me, why should it work that way? Convince me. You tell me, why does it work that way? How am I wrong? We, We would have these positions in our hearts. We probably do these things about the things that God calls us to, even if we believe But it's not just Moses' posture of of skepticism, of of seeing God and the supernatural more as a peer that ought to answer to him and have a dialogue. It's the concerns that Moses has that are so resonant to our own lives. Moses has, I think, at least four concerns here, if we look at the text. His first concern in chapter 3, verse 11, is that he is not up to the task, that this is something he is not qualified to do. That what God asks him to do is too difficult for someone like him. Who, who am I to do this, right? Like, why are you asking me? This is sitting in the stands watching the Red Sox play, and they're saying, you, on the field, you're pitching right now. Bottom of the ninth, we need you to close this out. You're like, who am I, right? Why? No, no, no. I have no experience. I didn't play in high school. I don't even know how to throw properly, right? That, that's the feeling Moses is having. Who am I? He's concerned that he is not up to this. And this is the concern that we tend to have in our own lives. God, I don't know that I'm the kind of person that would be able to do the kinds of things that you call me to. They would have the kind of heart for other people that you call me to. They would have the kind of generosity, the kind of peace, the kind of patience, the kind of self-sacrifice. I don't know if I'm the person that can give up those things that I don't want to give up. I, I don't know if that's me. We have those concerns too. A second concern for Moses is in verse 13 of chapter 3 and in verse 1 of chapter 4, that people either won't know or won't believe what he's talking about, that they won't get it. He'll talk about the God that he met, and people will not be familiar with what he's talking about. It will be strange to them. They will be skeptical. They'd say, no, you didn't see God. That would happen today. That may have happened to you today in talking about your faith. They won't have seen what Moses saw. They won't have experienced what he has experienced yet, and they won't understand. There will be a gap between what he knows and what they know, and he'll feel like he can't bridge that gap. And that's our concern too. I'd say very much our concern if we're Christians here in a very post-Christian context, that will people even know what I'm talking about? Will it, will it even be something that's reasonable? Years ago, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, wrote a book called Reason for God. Later, he realized that, that there weren't even common frameworks for understanding the, con- the concept of God, so he had to write a new book called Making Sense of God. That's where we are. Does God even make sense? Is there even a common framework? Moses is wondering, if I talk to them, will they even get it? Are you asking me to do something that's even possible? 
Maybe we might think that in a sense of, if I'm not a Christian, if I become a Christian, will people that I care about even understand? Will it make sense to them? Will they get it? Will I lose them in the process of this? It's the second concern. A third concern is that what God might be able to do in one arena, it says he's going to turn this staff into a snake just because Moses drops it or picks it up, he's going to turn it back. He's going to turn his hand leprous and sort of incurable and then back to whole. Or he's going to turn water into blood when Moses pours it on the ground. We might think, Moses might think that God can do those things, but he either won't be interested in or won't have power to help me with something else. He won't be able to help my speech. Is he God over that? The, the, tongues, or the text says that, that he's slow of speech. The Hebrew is more like heavy, that it, his tongue is heavy in his mouth. He can't get the words out. It seems to suggest that in verse 10 of chapter 4 that Moses had a, a speech impediment. He's concerned, yeah, you're strong over there, but can you do something about this? That's a very modern perspective wondering, yeah, maybe all those things work over there, but what about me? What about my situation? Are you God over here? Are you going to fix that? Won't we need a different power? Aren't we supposed to do this ourselves? Aren't those the kind of things that we ask? Moses is thinking, I'm supposed to do the talking, but I can't do that. Aren't I supposed to be the one to do the talking? Are you really going to show up in this way? He's concerned that he's He's not going to get the help that he needs from God. And that's a pretty common concern. Fourth, and really this is his biggest concern in chapter 4, verse 13, is that this is just not something he's interested in. Just, no thank you. Moses says, here I am, but at the end of this chapter he's saying, please, I'm not here, right? Moses is not here right now, right? Uh, you've called, you can leave a message, but I'm not here. I'm not, I'm not able to receive visitors at this time. Moses does not want to do this. That's very clear. He's arguing with God. He's saying not once, don't make me do this, but twice, don't make me do this in the span of a few sentences. He's concerned that this life will be hard and his life would be better if he didn't have to do these things. If he could just keep hanging out with the goats in the wilderness. That would be much better. He likes the goats, right? He's, he's happy. He's good with this. He doesn't want to do these things. And I'm sure you've had a concern like that. You feel content where you are. Yeah, I'm in a little bit of the wilderness. Yeah, maybe I'm not doing what God has put on my heart. Maybe I've deadened myself to some things, but I, though that sounds like too much. I don't want to do that. I don't want to live the Christian life. I don't want to do the particular thing. I don't want to do this part of the Christian life. God, I, I don't want to do that. We're back to being modern people, arguing and negotiating with the supernatural over what we will or will not do. Mostly because we feel like it won't work with our plans. It won't work with our vision for our life. That doesn't fit into the way I see things going, God. We look at all these things, these four concerns, we start to see a lot of ourselves in this story. That for as much of it might feel strange, a lot of it is way too familiar, maybe even uncomfortably familiar. That what's hard for Moses, what would have been hard for him, is still hard for us. We have concerns about what God wants to do in our lives. We have some doubts, we have some skepticism, we have some, some unwillingness to be a part of that. We feel like we're not up to it. We feel like God won't help us, like people won't understand, or that we just don't want to do it. We're just not interested. 
This is how we often are with God. Moses' concerns are our concerns too. So how does God respond to Moses' concerns, to, to our concerns? To get into our second point, which we'll look mostly at chapter four for this, God's response is to address what is at the heart of Moses' concerns and our concerns. And that is a fear of two things, fear of uncertainty and vulnerability. Moses is feeling uncertain of whether he's up to it. Who am I, right? Me? No. Why should I be involved in this? He's feeling vulnerable about how he will recede. What will I say to them? What, What will happen if they don't believe me? He's feeling uncertain about whether God's going to help him in this area where he knows he's weak, but I, I don't speak well. What's, how is that going to work? He is unexcited about having to risk so much vulnerability. He's saying, God, please no. Please, please no. Don't make me do this. I'm not here anymore. Please call back another time. In fact, don't call. Wrong number, right? God responds to those underlying fears of uncertainty and vulnerability by giving him things, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4, that provide what he would need to face them. He gives him confidence of his presence with him. He says, I will be with you. He gives him words to communicate about what he's seen and what will happen with that. I am who I am is the one who will deliver you. The God of your fathers, the God that is familiar to you, he's going to make the connection points to the people for Moses. And he gives him evidence to demonstrate and bridge the gaps for how he will be received. Signs and demonstrations of the power of God, of who he is. And even though we don't see those miracles happening in the same way today, the power of grace of God is just as miraculous that I used to be this person and yet I am this person now, almost like you were a staff that gets dropped and becomes a snake. You are something completely other than you used to be. God gives him this kind of power to bridge these gaps. God's response to Moses' concerns is not to let him get away from them. I want to say that again. God's response to Moses' concerns is not to let him get away from them. From all the uncertainty, from all the vulnerability and the hard things, if you look back at chapter 3, verses 16 and 19 that he's going to have to do, go back to a place that he hasn't been in decades, gather a people that may not remember him, tell them as someone who hasn't been with them for decades what they're supposed to do now, tell the leadership among them what they're supposed to do about how their life is going to change, and then go and argue with the most powerful ruler of that time. And tell him that he no longer has power and that his entire economy is going to crumble because he's taking the slave population out of it. These are hard things. God's not letting him get away from them. He's giving him strength and resources that he will need to face them. God is still going to do these things. These are still the ways that deliverance will come, but I am going to equip you for what you need to face them. God's response to all Moses' concerns, to our concerns that underlie those, shows us that to find true and greater freedom, we will have to step into greater vulnerability and uncertainty. That is the way that freedom comes. 
for God's people in Exodus. That is going to be the way that greater freedom comes from Moses in Exodus. That is the way all through Scripture and even now that greater freedom comes for any of us is stepping in, being brave, having courage to step into uncertainty and vulnerability. Not to go around them. God is not letting Moses turn away. Even if he makes an accommodation for him at one point with Aaron, he still doesn't let him get out of going. And even then, Moses is going to end up doing most of the talking that we're going to see later in these chapters. Aaron becomes a bit of an afterthought. God ends up doing the exact thing with Moses that Moses was like, no, don't make me do it. He gets up into it. Eventually, he finds what God has given him to be the resource that he needs to do these things. Moses is going to have to face these things. God is going to equip him to do it. God's responses are equipping him to do it. God's response to our concerns is meant to equip us to do the exact same thing. God isn't going to let us turn away from vulnerability and uncertainty to be more free in this life. The Christian life is not going to let you turn away from vulnerability and uncertainty uncertainty to have greater freedom in your life. You're going to have to face them. I'm going to have to. You're going to have to. We're going to have to do that together because becoming more free does not happen by avoiding these things. They are not in the way of greater freedom. They feel like that. They feel scary. They feel hard. They feel like that is directly in the way of me feeling happy and free and safe. But the reality is they are not just a path to greater freedom. They are that, but they also are greater freedom in and of themselves. Being able to step into uncertainty and vulnerability is a freedom in and of itself because when you take the risk to do something hard, something where you don't know how it's going to turn out, you don't know how you're going to be received. You don't know how people are going to look at you, talk about you, if they will be friends with you, if they will be mean to you or just ignore you or sort of just treat you with like a little pat on the head kind of response. Because when you do something hard, when you're going to be vulnerable and face uncertainty in pursuing the things of God, the things of patience, forgiveness, peace, justice, goodness, you are actually free in that moment, no matter what the outcome is. No matter how someone else responds to you, you are free in that moment because you're no longer stuck in the fear of what they will think. You're not stuck in the fear of what they will allow you to do. You're not stuck in the cage of everyone else's expectations. You are choosing what you believe is right and good according to God, and you are just taking a courageous step to walk in that. You're being who you're called to be, not just who they will let you be. God won't let you skip vulnerability in the Christian life because even though, yes, it is scary, it feels scary, it's where we actually find freedom. How could he make you more free by leaving you where you are? How could he make his people in slavery, in Egypt, more free by leaving them where they were? How could he make Moses come back to life from this wilderness period by just leaving him where he was and changing nothing? Your life won't change if nothing changes. 
It sounds stupid to even say, but don't we tend to believe that? Can't I just stay here? Can't I just do the same things? And something will eventually be different. No. We have to take risks. We have to step into uncertainty just like Moses had to. To step out of the darkness that is life apart from God, life captive to other oppressive things, to things that are not of God, to step into his calling on your life, you have to do something different. The problem is we have just gotten too used to our cage. We've gotten way too used to being in prison There's a movie that's very old now, Shawshank Redemption, but at the end of it, Morgan Freeman's character is finally released from prison, and he he has become so used to prison that he just wants to go back. The cage has become home, and I'm afraid that that's true for us in so many ways. The cage has become what's familiar. Imprisonment, being afraid, has become what's familiar, and that's what we know, and that's what feels safe, even though it is entrapment, though it's a net and not freedom. We think we're hiding from those things, but those are the things that make us safe and free. Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, gives, gives an anecdote about how really it is the other way around, that hiding from these things does not make us more safe. She says, people from the field of, of social psychology, um, researchers who examine how people are affected by advertising and marketing, they conducted a series of studies on vulnerability, and they found that the participants who thought they were not susceptible or vulnerable to deceptive advertising, that scams, right? That they were in fact more vulnerable. She says the researcher's explanation for, for why this happens, this phenomenon, was that far from being a shield, the illusion of invulnerability, of protecting yourself, of of course I'm safe, of course I'm safe from these things, undermines the very response that would have supplied genuine protection. That because you thought you were safe, you didn't know you were in danger. It's when we think we're safe because we stay away from vulnerability, from uncertainty, that we rob ourselves of the very thing that would lead us out into true safety and freedom. We stay inside the prison with the door open because we think it's safe in there, because we think that's home now, because we don't want to take risks. Moses was trying to stay in his cage, and God was having none of that. The same will be true for you. God is not going to let you stay in your cage. And you're going to see Moses' life changes. He becomes a drastically different person. He becomes radically free and frees others through that. And the same will be true of you in your own life. That when God brings you out of this cage, just amazing things happen. You feel different. Life is different. God's not going to leave you in that box. He wanted to lead Moses and his people out into greater freedom. That's still who he is. That's still what he wants for you. He had purposes for Moses. He has purposes for us that Moses didn't understand it, that we often don't understand. That brings us to our final point, God's purposes. Moses, like a typical modern person, doesn't seem to think that God could see something that he doesn't see. 
that God could have a plan that Moses wouldn't understand, that, that he would have a purpose beyond what his systems of thinking and rationality and purpose could account for, that there might be something beyond his grasp. That's a very modern conviction. In particular, for Moses' fear about how his speech impediment would take him into dramatic, uncertain vulnerability, he doesn't seem to consider that God might have a plan for that, that that might actually be part of God's design. He doesn't consider that maybe his particular struggle, that maybe his struggle with speaking was exactly the way that God wanted to talk to Pharaoh. Moses doesn't seem to consider that. That, that his speech was what God wanted as the king's speech. It's what he wanted in his messenger, that perhaps God wanted to send someone who didn't speak well to deliver such a powerful message. It doesn't seem to cross Moses' mind that God might want to put his own power and might on display, as he will do in the plagues and the exodus, that he would want to put that on display side by side with much less powerful speech. That maybe God wanted to do it a very different way. That he wanted to show himself to be unbelievably powerful. That he could, if he wanted to at any moment, flatten a society and make it unravel at its seams, and yet also show himself as someone humble enough to send as the king's messenger a man who could not speak well. that that would be his royal messenger. Moses misses that. Misses how it suggests that there is vulnerability that God himself takes on in his relationship to us. That the God who will make the most powerful king on earth at that time look like an ant would risk letting himself be represented to that king with less polish, less impressiveness, and even less clarity. That God would let vulnerability be part of how he was known to the world. He would let vulnerability and uncertainty be the channel through which he would make himself known to the world. And this is exactly what God does in the coming of Jesus Christ to save and deliver us. Because he revealed himself there not just as powerful, but as humble, even, as Isaiah points out, unimpressive. Isaiah chapter 52 said that when the Christ came, the one who would hear the cries of his people in sin and deliver us from its oppression in the power of the cross, that when he came, there would be nothing special to draw us to him. He would not be attractive. He would not be magnanimous and charismatic in that way. There would be nothing to signal that this is the one who is going to deliver you. Jesus would come in power to save us in a humble, gentle, and unimpressive way. He would be physically unattractive. He would be born into a scandalous situation that would make him subject to ridicule for the rest of his life. He would live in a remote part of an empire doing unexciting manual labor for most of his life. He would live in a part of Israel that someone could say, does anything good even come out of there? I don't know what part of America you think is like that, but that's the part that Jesus came from in Israel, right? The part where you're like, what? There? No. That's the the unimpressive 
part of God that he brings, that he would come in a vulnerable way, not just in his reputation, but even physically vulnerable, that God who is infinite and eternal would make himself someone that you could hurt, someone that you could even kill. Because as in Exodus, stepping into vulnerability was going to be the way to freedom the way to freedom for his people. This is what Jesus does for us on the cross, stepping into the vulnerability of that moment, the uncertainty of that moment, where he does have to cry out in an honest way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because this feels uncertain. This feels vulnerable. Jesus saves us not by stepping around vulnerability, but by stepping into it, leading the way for us, being the one who would open the gates that we might walk through more safely into vulnerability and uncertainty because he stepped into it first. He took it on. He identifies with us. In him, you have someone who truly understands what it is to face vulnerability and uncertainty as a human. You have that in Jesus. God comes to deliver you in that way. He wants to use vulnerability and humility and uncertainty to deliver you. You don't have to go around these things. This is what Moses didn't know yet about God's purposes. That he is both, Moses is just being reintroduced to God in this moment, that he is both powerful, he can see that, but humble, he doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know that vulnerability is the way into freedom. He wants to avoid that. We want to avoid that. But God's becoming weak for us, being killed for us, was the way to set us free. It was not in the way, it was the way. God uses even the unimpressive things to give us freedom, especially those things. That's what he wants to use. That's what grace is about, not God showing off your best, showing off his best in our worst. That's what grace is. God wants the unimpressiveness of your life in sin to be the canvas where he paints his masterpiece of grace, showing what he can do in any situation and overcome any obstacle. Your struggles are not in the way of God working in your life. They are the exact place that he is excited to work and that you will be most effective in showing others the grace of God. This is how God pulls us out of darkness and into light. Through power, yes, but through vulnerability, through humility, using purposes we often don't understand to do what we wouldn't let ourselves otherwise do or become. And doing all this, not for the best of us, but for the worst of us, Scripture says. Thinking that even broken people are worth the risk and the pain that this way of freedom would bring to his life. That he would think that you, in your brokenness and limits, are special. That you, in whatever differences you have, are worth representing him, worth being his messenger, worth delivering the king's speech. That he sees you in that way. Because he embraces humility too. So how then do we embrace humility more 
this week and the coming weeks. I want to encourage us to do two things, to live into this more, to take the steps that Moses is going to take. I want to encourage you to leave room and to go. First, I want to encourage you to leave room for God's purposes in your life. Where do you need to leave room for God to work out purposes that you don't understand right now? Where do you say, God, this isn't the way this works. I don't want to do things this way. I feel this way. This is the way it must be. Where do you need to leave room for God to say, there is something you don't see? Where are you running, hiding from God because it's hard, because you don't want to do it, because you're worried about how you'll be received? Not seeing that it's actually the way out of all that to step into vulnerability and uncertainty, to step in the uncertainty of a relationship with a God who can do these kinds of things. That is uncertainty. Christianity is uncertainty. We are finite. He is infinite. Can there be anything more uncertain than the finite meeting the infinite? That is the Christian life. Where do you need to leave room for there to be some uncertainty in your relationship with God, where it can be something other than what you expect, call you to do something other than what you want to do? Where do you need to leave room for him to have a purpose you don't understand, to bring you a freedom you don't know that you're missing? I want to encourage you to ask yourself that question today. Think about that. Where am I not leaving room? Where am I telling God no? Where am I being just like Moses and saying, I don't agree with you. It's on my terms. You tell me why it should work that way. Where do I need to say, maybe I don't get it? Ask someone who knows you well. They might see it more clearly than you do to leave some of that room. But I want to secondly and and finally in closing encourage you not to just leave room for God to speak into your life with those purposes, but for him to do what he does with Moses, to actually send you to go. Because he doesn't send Moses without his help. He gives help. That's what chapter 4 is about. Here are all the ways that I'm going to help you do this. This is going to be hard, but here are the ways I'm going to help you do this. And he gives us even more help than that now in the Holy Spirit. Not a staff that we can drop, not a hand that we can change. He gives us the very power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to live in you now. So we go with that power in us to face these difficult things. So so where is God sending you in that? Where is he sending you as an unlikely, maybe even unwilling messenger of his grace? Exactly you. You today. You with the things that don't work. You with the things that may never work. Where is he sending you as you are in his counterintuitive way Who or what is God putting on your heart? What vulnerability and uncertainty is he calling you to take just the smallest step of trust into? Ask God to give you the power through the Holy Spirit to to trust his power, to share the message of the unimpressive part of you with other people, that the most impressive part of God might show up in that same place. Go in the freedom of that vulnerability, knowing that we have a God who isn't afraid to be less polished himself, who is forever that person. Jesus always has that story. That's still who he is. He died in unimpressive humility to give a Moses like you and me strength and grace 
to share with others his exodus of light. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a moment for you to talk to God, maybe thanking him for making humility safe, for making unimpressiveness important, maybe confessing the ways that you aren't willing to see it God's way, that that you do want to keep arguing with him about this. Ask God to soften your heart, to give you what you need to step into this vulnerability in his light. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you hear these prayers. We ask that in your humble grace, in your powerful grace, you would answer. In your name we pray, amen. I invite those that took children to children's worship uh, to pick them up through this door at this time. We'll wait for them and their teachers to come back. We'll sing a song of response before we take communion together. So please stand as you're able, and most of all, stand in your hearts, and let's sing about God's grace.